my father struggled to find an idea and he came up with the original Earth Day idea was to ask teachers to set aside a single day to talk about the environment. And he did not want to prescribe what they should talk about. He wanted everyone, wherever they lived, to think about what was meaningful to them in their community, which was really the genius of Earth Day, was it wasn't a prescribed, top-down kind of thing. And lo and behold, this simple idea of just a day for teachers to teach became 20 million people, the largest secular event in American history, well beyond my father's original vision, successful beyond his wildest imagination. The fact that it endures today was a huge surprise to him. And the point I want to make is that there are unforeseeable outcomes to ideas and actions. And Earth Day is a perfect example of the unforeseeable outcome of a simple idea and then the action of many individuals. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. One of my main goals for this podcast is to bring people loving what they're doing, seeing acting on one's environmental values not as an obligation or a chore, but as part of being something greater than yourself, than any of us, benefiting everyone, benefiting yourself. As you'll hear, Tia Nelson's roots precede the first Earth Day. Her father started it. She's worked in government, nonprofits, on her own, she said for about 27 years. And despite the many problems remaining, which as far as I can tell, basically all of them, she's the opposite of jaded. She's enthusiastic. Her joy, even in the face of setbacks, and as a Democratic politician in Wisconsin, she's faced big ones lately. That tells me that the joy that anyone feels from nature, walking on the beach, picking apples, whatever you love about nature, that that's available to anyone. In other words, the more that you act, the more that you'll love the results of your actions and the process of your actions. And as you'll hear, you'll very likely influence others who will thank you. Let's listen to Tia. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Tia Nelson. Tia, how are you? I'm great and very happy to be with you. Glad to have you here. And I can't help but mention that before hitting record, we were talking about some of the recent work that you've been doing. And I was just overwhelmed by the enthusiasm that you have. And a lot of people get jaded in working on the environment. And by the way, I've had people who are strong on the leadership side, some people who are strong on the environment side. You are strong on both sides. I mean, you have a lot of leadership in your background, a lot of environment work in your background. What, what keeps the enthusiasm so high? Well, that's interesting and timely question for me personally. The reason you're hearing so much excitement and enthusiasm from me this morning uh, is I've just come out of a two-day retreat with faith leaders from all over the world, uh, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, keepers of indigenous knowledge. Uh, We convened for two days to talk about how to uh, increase the value proposition that we are all responsible for God's creation, uh, however we might think about that question. And it was a very interesting conversation. It, it was a shot in the arm for me. If you'd interviewed me last week, you would have uh, probably found me in a, engaged in what I call the complicated dance between hope and despair. I've been at this a very long time, and my spirit has been uh, weary of late, largely because of the National Climate Assessment and the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the really dire climate crisis we face. And this has been my life's work. And I can't help but reflect on being a young person. Uh, I was in my late 20s or maybe early 30s. In 1992, I was in Rio de Janeiro when 
George Herbert Walker Bush signed the Framework Convention on Climate Change and said the United States will lead in addressing this existential crisis. I reflect back on the 27 years of my work, and I can't help but be sad about the missed opportunities to have averted the crisis we face now. And so this convening of faith leaders, scientists, and experts to talk about how to break down the barriers between science and faith communities and to think differently and uh, speak differently and act in according to our values, however we uh, set those values, it was being around those folks and having a what to me were really new and fresh conversations about uh, how we can make a difference and create a more uh, a brighter future, a more sustainable planet uh, for humanity and for uh, all species. It just it infused me with a renewed sense of hope. I can't help but comment on the smile that came on your face at the end of that. It was I wish people could have seen it because it was an infectious one. I could not help but smile myself. And and in the midst of of I think you said the complicated dance between hope and despair. And you talked about these audiences or participants in this, in this. And I agree with you. I mean, one of the main things about this podcast is that everyone hears leadership in the environment. They always hear environment. And people always come to me saying, hey, I, I got someone perfect for your podcast. They started this recycling program in some place. So they started this composting thing. And no one hears the leadership part. And I think this is a major missing element. I think so far, most of the voice of Climate change, but climate change is one part of the environment because there's plastic and mercury and deforestation, all these things. And not to minimize any of them, they're all very important. And voices that are missing are of leaders, like effective. I, look, I love the messages that scientists, journalists, educators, politicians are bringing, but most of them are not effective leaders in, in like influencing people. I mean, journalists really want you just to read the next article and educators want to give you facts Scientists want to give you facts, but not necessarily to change behavior, which is what I heard you talk about here. And I'm trying to bring leadership out. And it sounds like you're also, I don't know if people have been, have been not trying to do that for a long time or if they've been trying to, but the energize, not many people come from science talks talking like you just did. Yeah. Well, this is, I was not raised in a home with a faith uh, tradition and uh, my mother and her childhood experiences soured her, I shall say, on organized religion. And so it was uh, very long into my adulthood before I even thought about uh, what spirituality meant to me. And for me, it's very nature-based. But interesting to reflect, there's 7.3 billion people on the planet. 80% of them identify with some faith, some kind of faith. And faith leaders are very powerful, and they don't talk about facts, which is what uh, scientists have done and environmental advocates and uh, teachers and journalists. And the truth is that facts aren't particularly persuasive. Stories that appeal to people's values are deeply meaningful. And so having faith leaders engaged in this conversation, to me, seems to have just enormous and important potential. And we talked a lot during this retreat about the importance of individual action from the perspective that we need to create, engage in daily habits that uh, are socially normative, that we need to model behavior and, you know, our, our actions reflect who we are. Our actions reflect our values. How do we want to be remembered by our children and our ancestors? So there was a lot uh, and a very deep commitment among these faith leaders to individual action. All Many of them, if not most of them, are vegetarians or vegans, uh, for example. And they, for the obvious reasons, a concern about animal cruelty, a concern about environmental degradation, and well-being of the body. And I, I'm not a vegetarian. I've made certain choices about my diet. We can talk about that uh, later. But my point was that these faith leaders in every element of their life see their daily actions as a reflection of who they are. 
and an important element of their spiritual identity. And we know through abundance of research that people are more inclined to behave responsibly towards the environment when their neighbors and their family and their friends do that. So this modeling behavior of individual action is very important in these faith leaders are living it day in and day out, and they have enormous power to uh, influence how we think about uh, caring for God's creation, however you might make meaning of that word, you know? And so I learned long ago, and I've had many discussions with my with my boss and with others, do people say, well, how, you know, how people can deny climate change, the facts are compelling, there's a you know, nearly 100% consensus among climate scientists that we're changing the climate and that humans and fossil fuel emissions, the CO2 and other greenhouse gases that that uh, come from burning fossil fuels and also uh, certain land use practices, that these, uh, you know, accumulate in the atmosphere and warm the planet like a blanket. These are all the facts and we we know them to be true if you are in a science circle, uh, but they don't move people to act. And that's, that's to me, the power of these faith leaders is they're speaking emotionally from a value proposition through story and actions. And I, you know, I'm just really excited about the potential to have these interfaith conversations about our values and how we can be better stewards of the earth. So, you know, it would, as I said earlier, for me, it was a, a welcome shot in the arm and a tonic for the, for the sadness I was feeling on the 49th anniversary of Earth Day, faced with, you know, uh, overwhelming evidence that were dramatically altering, you know, the capacity of, of the Earth to sustain life for humans and other species in ways never seen in human history. So I'm interested in participating in any conversation that helps people see themselves as being a part of making and envisioning and building a brighter future because we each have the opportunity and I would argue obligation to participate in that and and we need leadership to do that and and faith leaders are a really powerful force in that conversation and it's just exciting to be at the table in which this kind of convening uh, which these are worlds that have been kept very separate historically, right? The, it's, you know, science and and religion were considered, you know, quite separate, distinct, and we're trying to break down the barriers between those and and build the capacity of faith leaders to help be a part of uh, building this brighter future. And I couldn't be more excited or grateful or humbled to be a part of that conversation. I think that the something missing so much that is is clear in every word that you said or you know the tone is that something missing that i think is the most important part here is that this is a very meaningful thing to do this is like to me one of the great potential i mean there's a lot of people out there who are like oh this is an opportunity and most of the time when i heard that said it's it's wordplay i feel like they don't really really get it for me, what gets me going so much, and I believe that there's nothing special about, you know, I'm special in many ways, but not this way. I think that when I switched like my diet, my behavior with the not flying, all these things, it's really a joy. It's like, it's meaningful. It's deeply meaningful. And it, and this is a message that I would really like to get out there. I'm just starting now to kind of explore it. There's very few things that we like more than to be a part of and to contribute to something greater than any of us, but that benefits all of us and in particular ourselves. I'm not doing things because it's an obligation. I don't act on my environmental values out of a sense of obligation. Well, I started out of a sense of obligation, but that's not why I keep going. It's because for me, the biggest thing is that the food is more delicious and everything kind of feels like an extrapolation from there. And, you know, I, I have to preface this. I have a science, I have a PhD in physics. I helped put an extra observational satellite off into space for people who don't know that already. I'm acting based on my, my understanding of the world based on scientific evidence and so forth. But when I see the IPCC, when I see the people meeting, they all flew together. And I, I think that they're telling people, here's information to act on. They're actually leading without realizing it. And what they're actually leading them people to do is through their behavior, which is basically to say, this is really important, but for me, it's okay to do this stuff that's highly polluting. 
because it's for something important for me. And I think everybody gets that. I think we have a nation full of people who are saying, you know, like I care about the environment, but in an accident, the SUV is safer. So I'm going to get the SUV because I'm not going to sacrifice my kids' safety. And we're leading people that I think the next to really reach sustainability, which I, I think is eminently possible. And everyone I know who knows it well says, and not that I know, everyone that I read, the better they know this stuff, the more they say things like, we can do it. We don't even need new technologies. The question is, will we? That's a question of leadership. And as long as it's presented as a chore or something you have to go out of your way to do or something that's like, it doesn't connect with you, the listener, of any, to anyone, as long as it doesn't connect with your values and, and it's not meaningful for you right here, right now, I think that's missing. And you're talking, you got it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're exuding it right now. And you, from what you said before, you have your ups and downs, but when it really connects, and I don't hear that coming out. I, I hear it's like, you know, think about your grandchildren. Think about it. Like, that's important. Yes. But it's, um, everyone has their unique thing. Yeah. There was a lot of conversation yesterday about how our actions reflect who we are and what our values are, which is an interesting way to think about it. You, you said just a minute ago, something that I think is very important for people to understand. We know how to solve the climate crisis without any advancements in technology. Yes, we would benefit from greater battery storage capacity that's underway, but there's a a great book I hope you're familiar with, and I would encourage you to, to interview the director of Project Drawdown, Dr. Jonathan Foley. Okay. He's oh, one wow. of the most, he's a glass half full guy. Project Drawdown has ranked the 100 climate solutions, and including the cost of implementation, the greenhouse gas benefits of deploying them at scale, and the cost savings, and many of these actions actually save us money and don't cost us money. And it's a quite surprising list. A number three on Project Drawdown's list of climate solutions is reducing food waste. Well, that's something each and every one of us can do. It saves us money. It doesn't require sacrifice. It's just having a greater awareness. We live in a time of such abundance that we actually spend our own money to buy food that we don't end up eating and we throw it away. And 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 then I'm sorry to interrupt. We, and then we pay people to haul it away and it's loud. And it's and I'm like, you pay people to, uh, yes, sorry to interrupt. I couldn't well, help that it. that one particularly makes me crazy, you know, no one who's poor would buy food and then throw it away, That you know, right? Uh, and here in America, we're so rich that we can afford to buy food that we never consume. 40% of the food produced in America is thrown away. And if food waste for a country it would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the world after China and the United States. There is something very simple and basic uh, that every individual can do to avoid food waste. So that's ranked number three in Project Drawdown's book. And surprisingly in, to me, even as someone who spent a lot of time at the an important intersection between land use, forestry, agriculture, and climate change, because there's a really, agriculture and forestry are both sources of greenhouse gas emissions, but also have the capacity to sequester CO2. I mean, it's the only known technology that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's pretty simple. It's called photosynthesis, right? Mm -hmm. And if we, if we improve our land management practices, if we improve how we produce our food and, and how we manage our forests, we can make those changes a dramatic part of climate solutions. Indeed, 12 of the top 20 solutions have some relationship to food production or land use. And these are lesser known. We talk a lot about renewable energy, electrifying the transportation sector, uh, deploying more renewables, getting more efficient. But I like uh, talking about the land use component because uh, it's less less talked about, less well known. But I was just really surprised when I saw food waste listed as number three in Project Drawdown's book. And that led me uh, through my work at the Outrider Foundation to work with the YEARS Project and the Yale Climate Communications Project to do a social first short form video on food waste to tell that story and then gauge how people uh, react to that content. And it's, uh, I think we had over 40 million views. It was the most popular video. We've done a series of videos on climate solutions, but it was by far the most 
viewed and shared video uh, we did because I think it surprises people. And I think the element of surprise is, is helpful. And you can appeal to people's values. So I, I was trying to make the point that, that we know what we need to do. Would government policies, are they important, indeed critical? They are. But the power of the individual to be a part of addressing these challenges is enormous. And to me, that's quite exciting. So I'm curious, you, okay, there's clearly a lot of drive here and it's endured for decades. When you think about the environment, what is the environment, what drives you? Maybe you've been asked this many times, but like, what keeps you going for so long? What's, what does the environment mean to you? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I've, I've had moments of, of despair in, in recent times because I've been at this a long time and I can't help but reflect on, on the missed opportunities and, want, and wonder what we could have done different, what we could have done better. My, I'm off, you know, I, I adored my father. He was uh, not just a great public servant and political leader, but uh, a really fun guy uh, to be around and a great father. And I took a keen interest in what he did. My sense, or the way, you know, the way I think of it, was I was simply trying to find ways to, to be with uh, a father who couldn't be home very much. He was a state senator when I was born. He was governor, elected governor when I was two. He was elected to the United States Senate when I was six. So my father had been in public service all of, all of my formative years. And the obligations of, of being an elected official take up evenings and weekends. And so... I think I just developed a strategy of being interested in what he was doing as a means to be with him. And so I would go to the U.S. Senate with him when I didn't have school. I would follow him to the Senate floor and watch him debate and vote. I would sit in on meetings and try to understand what was happening. And I loved it. And and my father uh, enjoyed it, too. And he was often asked, you know, how he came to have the environment as his life's work he also fought hard for for civil rights and uh, consumer protection and he accomplished a lot of things outside of the environmental arena but he's most well known for his environmental accomplishments and of course for being founder of birthday but he simply reflected that he was a little boy in a small town and nature was his playground and he was fascinated by the migration of the turtles from he lived he grew up in the town of clear lake and uh, the Turtles would migrate each fall from Clear Lake over to Mud Lake because it was more suitable winter hibernation, the muddy bottom of that lake. And he was fascinated by the migration. So nature was just imbued in him from childhood. And uh, he and I spent a lot of time. We spent our summers in northern Wisconsin um, or up in Door County, the peninsula that that, uh, sort of the thumb of Wisconsin that uh, above Green Bay that rest beautifully on the shores of Lake Michigan. So my summer childhoods were spent in nature with with my father, and that was my passion. And I loved animals, I loved nature, and I loved my father, and I wanted to do what he did. So I studied wildlife ecology, and turns out I was a terrible scientist. And I struggled mightily in school. I'm severely dyslexic and it took me a very long time to get my undergraduate degree and a lot of support and, and nurturing from others. It was very difficult. It was not a pleasant experience at all, but I did eventually get my degree. And I worked for a little while as a field ecologist. I was a fisheries technician collecting data on fish populations. And, and I, you know, I wasn't any good at it. And it wasn't a very good job for someone who scrambles their numbers and their words and to be, you know, collecting and trying to make sense of data. That's just, uh, so I pretty quickly, I, I did that for about nine months. I pretty quickly pivoted to the sort of public policy side and the issues advocacy side of the environment because I wasn't, you know, uh, don't know if I was a natural at it, but I was certainly very comfortable. I was walking the halls of Congress when I was 10 years old, and I felt I belonged there. I feel everyone belongs there. Every citizen should feel uh, empowered to use their voice, um, not just through voting, but through engaging with their elected officials. So I pivoted away from field ecology work to working on first state environmental policy, and I became Uh, quite impressed by the work of the Nature Conservancy. Um, I saw a lot of environmental groups that just uh, fought in opposition to bad things. And sometimes that's 
needs to happen. But I wanted to be a part of making good things happen. And I saw the Nature Conservancy's work in conserving biodiversity and land and species uh, as a way to have a, a you know a, a, an affirming pathway to meaningful work for me. And and I managed to uh, get hired there in government relations initially and later in Latin American policy and then subsequently as director, first director of their climate change program. I was the only one working on it for a while. Now it's a, you know, it's a huge uh, team there, but that was almost 20 years and that was very rewarding work for me. And whenever I got frustrated with the lack of uh, say progress uh, in the climate treaty negotiations, which have gone on, if, you know, for a very long time. My spirit would be renewed by going to, you know, Bolivia, where I worked on some projects, or Brazil, uh, Belize, Guatemala, uh, where our on-the-ground work was helping people thrive and uh, protect nature, and those that time in nature and that time with local communities. That would renew me, and then I'd be able to go off, you know, to another damn conference of the parties. <laughs> um, I've been to so many of them now. I it can be a frustrating and tiresome uh, way to spend one's time. So for me, my spirit is always renewed in nature. I have uh, an abundant garden here at my home. I grow vegetables, a lot of vegetables and flowers. When I come home frustrated or sad or stressed out, you know, I just go stick my hands in dirt. And uh, yesterday, before I went to the retreat, I went out and harvested all my French breakfast radishes and washed them up and took them as an offering to the uh, crew that was uh, in, in retreat out at Holy Wisdom Monastery. And that, you know, those are the little joys of life for me. And nature is, whether it's me going into my garden or me as I will be uh, tomorrow, hiking around the north woods of Wisconsin. It's a very magical place for me. That's where I renew myself and find my energy again. You start, you're making me hungry with that vegetable talk. <laughs> you know, I heard the biggest thing and was this just the relationship with your father and how, and even that was multifaceted because I heard you talk about how he had all these obligations that kept you away, but then you had this way of keeping up with him that connected you with him. And not all children take on the values many rebel against what their parents did. I'm sure there's some rebellion in there too. But that connection with the with your father and I heard time on the state senate floor and in, in the halls of, of government, as well as time up in the woods on lakes. And the lakes to this day bring you renewal and revitalizing your spirit. It's magical, yeah. And uh, now I'm making myself hungry. <laughs> Yeah. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. You know, one of the things that I ask people on this is that, you know, there's a lot of advice out there of like, here's what you can do for the environment. You know, Greenpeace has their thing and New York Times has their thing. Based on what, what you care, you know, what you just shared. And I mean, it could be the, your father, that relationship. It could be the Nature Conservancy work. But is there something that you could think of that you haven't, that you're not already doing that you could do to act on your values? And there's a couple of things. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to fix all the world's problems. It's not about that. It's, you know, you talked about individual action before and the value of it, which some people need, some people disagree. They think, you know, if I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. I found that individual action, when it's based on one's personal values, that you say, not me, you know, I'm not, this isn't for me, that that sense really rejuvenates. And so, you know, I try to bring leaders on so that people can listen and hear their experience. And I wonder if there's anything, and most people don't have something right off the bat. It takes a little going back and forth. But is there anything that comes to mind that- I think about that uh, quite a bit. And and there are a number of practices that I've been uh, engaged in for, you know, as long as I can remember. I, you know, I compost, I grow some of my own vegetables. Of course, I recycle. I would have to be in the desert dying of uh, dehydration to ever buy another 
bottle, you know, plastic, single-use plastic water bottle, right? I, I carry them with me. It's it's uh, easy and convenient. And um, I presume when you say you carry them with you, you mean reusable ones. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes, thank you. I have I have different size swell bottles. Those are my favorite. I you know to advertise brand any anything will do. But I have a little swell bottle that fits in my purse, and then I have a larger swell bottle for like if I'm hiking and or something like that. So reducing food waste, composting, growing my own vegetables, avoiding single-use plastic whenever possible. Uh, these are just, I don't even think about it. It's just the, the way I uh, live. The thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, and much more after this two-day uh, retreat, uh, most of the uh, religious leaders uh, there uh, were, uh, not all, but many are vegetarians. And of course, in the Buddhist tradition, you it's you know, contrary to the values of being a Buddhist to to harm a sentient being. And I thought, you know, some years ago, I decided I'm not going to buy meat from a grocery store, from uh, any industrial uh, manufacturer. So I, I buy meat at the farmer's market and there's a local butcher who gets their animals uh, grass-fed Humanely raised animals uh, locally in in Dane County where I live, and so those I either buy at the farmers market or I buy at uh, the underground butcher, and you know was feeling good about myself, shall we say, uh, with that decision. But I'm getting to a place now where I feel like I need to do more in terms of diet. Really, deforestation in the tropics is largely driven by cattle grazing and soybean production. Certainly the frontier of Brazil and the Amazon, which we're losing rapidly, is to meet the you know, ferocious appetites of the world for beef and soybean, which is typically used as feed. And so I feel like I need to do more. And I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, I think everyone has to make their own dietary choices, but the impact of beef in particular it's so uh, is so much larger than say pork turkey uh, chicken uh, not just in terms of the emissions associated with it uh, but also the amount of water required and so you know I, I saw a great uh, video by uh, M Sanjan a scientist with whom I used to work who's at uh, UC Davis now I think on meat. It's quite uh, amusing and it's not preachy at all. Uh, But one of the points he makes is, you know, we know that a Mediterranean diet is good for our health. And one of the key features of a Mediterranean diet is that animal protein is a small component of it. It is a largely plant-based diet. It's healthier for our bodies. It's healthier uh, for the environment. And um, it means it doesn't mean you're foregoing the consumption of uh, animal products, but that it's a smaller feature of, of a meal. You know, it, I, I'm working with uh, Brent Suter, the pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, who's become our sports ambassador. I, I, as you may have gathered from some of the things I've said, I'm not particularly interested in speaking to the choir. If environmentalists, the so-called choir, you know, could have resolved these challenges, they'd be resolved by now. I'm interested in, you know, to extend the metaphor, uh, expanding the congregation. And just as important as the message is the messenger. And so Brent is this fabulous young man and a great athlete, and he can reach people I I could never reach. Uh, Brent eats uh, animal products only once a day. He has to do that for training and recovery from an injury. He only eats uh, organic and grass-fed and locally sourced uh, animal products. They taste better. His wife, who's not interested in vegetarianism, has come to discover that that those locally sourced products taste a lot better. But he's an interesting messenger, and he's running this campaign, this social media campaign called Strike Out Waste. And he's giving reusable water bottles to any of his teammates who will promise not to buy single-use drinks. And, you know, he said it's just to him uh, um, seeing, you know, a bunch of plastic water bottles in the bottom of the dugout at the Brewers games uh, really bothers him. And, And just him modeling that behavior and then slowly teammates adopting the behavior that Brent was modeling 
has now led to the uh, brewers, the, the team and management of the team to um, ban plastic straws in the stadium and, and encourage a, a, a variety of other sustainability practices at the game. That's going to reach people I would never reach. And just Brent's single act of, he, he asked for permission when he was hired by the team. He wanted to take with him his own reusable lunch tray because he did not want to use a single disposable uh, lunch tray, which is what they use. So he literally travels with his own lunch tray. You can imagine how he might have been mocked by his teammates. And now, lo and behold, uh, some of his teammates are uh, uh, joining him in in uh, pledging not to use uh, single-use water bottles. You know. Well, look at that. So the people who say, if I act but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. Well, here's a big counterexample. Yeah. So it's funny because I started to ask you about your father, but it felt like this connected on a lot of, I mean, you said you felt you need to do this, uh, do the diet, but I also feel like there's also want, and it's not, I don't feel like you're doing it out of a sense of obligation. No, I think that's fair. And I, I guess, uh, as I reflect on your original question, I, I wandered off somewhere else, I guess. I reflect on what I can do. And I think it's important that I, do what I can. And I find that it makes my life simpler, often uh, more enjoyable, often uh, tastier food, uh, always, you know, and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm almost 63. You know, life is a, uh, a journey, not a, and this experience is a journey, not a, not a destination. So I want to continue that journey and reflect on, you know, my life's purpose and my values and how I conduct myself and how I can make a difference. And so it's just important to me to reflect on that. And, and the, the issue around beef, I'll probably still eat it occasionally, but it's a really significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. And I've just come to feel that this is something that I can do. That's not really a sacrifice for me. And gosh, I mean, look what's happening in in uh, meat substitutes, uh, these, um, the, uh, what is it called? The impossible burger? I had the founder on yeah. here. Oh, yeah. did you? Oh, I would I'll have to yeah. go back and listen to that. For me, it, uh, the more I learned, the more it seemed that, that this was, uh, uh, something that I might do in addition to what I'm already doing. You have to know, Josh, that long before, you know, recycling was a norm. I mean, my father was raised by such a, uh, thoughtful, my grandfather was a doctor and he was so frugal course, it's during the depression. But he, depression. he was a, you know, he was a doctor and he had what he needed, you know, to provide for his family. Many people did not during that time. But my grandfather and then thus my father, we would get out his pocket knife at Christmas time when gifts, you know, were exchanged and he would very carefully slice the uh, tape on the packaging, right? And set it aside uncrumbled so that he could wrap another gift in it because the idea of wasting, you know, wasting that paper, you know, was silly to him. And so what I was, the point I was trying to make was we were recycling and certainly reducing and reusing and not wasting in the household in which I grew up long before, you know, recycling was, I mean, think of that. It's, it's a pretty normative behavior today. And my father, my father just didn't get much satisfaction from material accumulation. You know, he he was really proud of, of driving old cheap car. I, we had a Pinto uh, at one point and a Maverick at another point. And he special ordered one to not have an FM radio. You know, the, the FM radios had come out, but they cost more or a lighter because he thought it was just a waste of money to think that, you know, one needed a fancy car to get about. And he just didn't get pleasure from from uh, material things. He got pleasure in nature. He got pleasure in, in companionship and he got pleasure in debate about ideas. He was a ferocious debater. Um, he got pleasure in humor. He had, you know, was quite the jokester. It's just material things were never a, the source of pleasure for him. As long as, you know, uh, we had a roof over our heads and food that, you know, what, that was all that was needed to be happy. So he tells a story that was, I think, quite interesting about the first Earth Day and 
And this idea of individual action, we can talk about the Earth Day story later if we have the time. I think it's there's some interesting reflections there. But the, the specific story he was telling was, you know, that he was hopeful because kids today were more environmentally conscious um, and they were changing their parents' behavior. And the example he used was the uh, dolphin safe labeling on tuna cans. Uh-huh. So um, you probably are too young for this, but there was a brand of tuna and the spokesman was this fish called Charlie the Tuna, right? Yeah, Uh Yeah, you do remember Charlie Uh the Tuna. So, um, uh, and tuna fish was, you know, a can of tuna fish was a pretty common lunch in my household anyway. But once the awareness uh, came about how dolphins were being hurt in the harvesting of tuna, then there was this one of the first, you know, environmental labeling initiatives was to label tuna cans as dolphin safe. And they had to be certified as having been harvested without harming dolphins. And Papa told a story of this kid who learned this. And it was a little while after the first Earth Day and their mother brought home a can of tuna fish and it didn't have the dolphin safe symbol on it. And the kid made their mother go back to the grocery store and return it and get a different kind of tuna. And this was a source for my father of, of joy and also hope, you know, the idea that, that kids were adopting a, a set of values and, and that they were influencing their parents. And it's really interesting. I wish I could cite the research, but there was a new study fairly recently about how kids have a dramatic impact on their parents, especially the most impactful messenger for uh, conservatives who are, don't consider themselves environmentalists and who have voted for Donald Trump. The biggest impact source of influence is uh, from their own children. And that if the, the children are in school getting a message about sustainable practices or better stewardship of our natural resources and go home and convey that to their parents, that that has more impact on those individuals and that demographic than, than any other messenger. Yeah, I think all the manufacturers of cereal and Supermarket products all know about the influence of children, as does McDonald's and places like that. Yes. So you talked about reducing your, I guess, meat consumption. And I wonder if we could specify a certain amount and then then a time when we could come back. And the reflections that you talked about, I hope you would feel comfortable sharing them with the audience so that now they know what you're doing and then you could share what the experience was like. I suspect with all the talk you had about joy and simplicity and tastiness and happiness, I think it'll be something like that, but you know, they have to hear it. Yes, I'd be happy to. I'm still formulating in my head what um, this is going to look like. As I mentioned to you, I was uh, feeling pretty good about myself having some years ago made the decision to buy only humanely raised, locally sourced, grass-fed beef and local chicken and uh, pork. And we're blessed with an abundance. Uh, we, we have the most extraordinary farm-to-table movement. And we have the, the largest uh, farmer's market in the United States is right here in Madison. And the number of CSAs and- You're making me hungry again. <laughs> yeah, the locally sourced food from responsible farmers is- it, we're just, uh, it's an embarrassment of riches uh, in these parts. Um, so I feel pretty good about myself because, but it's easier for me. I, I have, uh, it's very convenient for me to buy uh, all my animal products from a local farmer and uh, know how that animal was um, raised. And it's just in coming to learn just about the outsized impact that beef has on the environment that I began to think about whether that might be an area for me to work on and what I am trying to, and then, you know, I spent several days with and not eating any meat at all, being very satisfied with the meals and really not feeling like I was missing out on anything. And so I didn't know whether would I take Brent, Brent Suter's strategy and have two plant-based meals a day and only one with animal protein and keep any beef consumption to some type of uh, festival-like uh, uh, celebration or perhaps 
something that I would eat if served in someone else's home, but would not, you know, make for myself or buy in a restaurant? Or am I going to limit myself to some quantity of consumption or some frequency uh, or infrequency? So here what I'm suggesting is to make it easier is what I hope for is it doesn't have to be what you're going to do for the rest of your life for this thing. Because what I find is what's most valuable is not, you can think all these things through and try to think of the best way, but what I find most effective is to do something and see how that works and then refine. And so I propose coming up with something and specific and an amount of time it would take to figure out, you know, probably more than a day uh, to figure out how it really, to, when you can reflect on it, when the reflection will be something meaningful that you've had a, a meaningful experience. Yeah, so I'm willing to set a goal. Uh, I got to think about what it is and, and do it for a month and then talk to you again. Is, does okay. that work? Yes, that works. And then, so when we hang up, I'll, if it's okay with you, I'll schedule a second conversation. And then I want to take your personal experience on this and connect it to all the stuff else we were saying because of individual action being so, I agree with you, so important and yeah. also missing. And I think that people will hear you say, oh, I bet you'll say something like, I could have done this earlier or something like that. Yeah. It usually helps to be as specific as you can. Goals that are vague are harder to achieve. Yeah. So even if it's, I mean, if it was something like I'm just going to have it once a day at most, or if it was you're going to have no beef or something like that, if, and you can change it if you want. I mean, yep, I'm inclined to say either animal protein only once one of my meals a day, or maybe I, limiting myself to beef uh, production a couple of times a month. Uh, I mean, beef production. I, forgive me. It's your, the reason I'm stumbling over my words is this is something I've been thinking a lot about. And I was like, how am I going to approach this? And long, you know, even before our talk was scheduled and then enhanced by my experience for the last few days. But after I get back from my trip up north, where I know I'm going to be served a lot of beef, because I'm staying with a beef farmer tonight and we're having steak for dinner, I, I guess I would be willing to commit to and be interested in whether I miss it in just saying no beef for, for a month. I guess after steak tonight? After, or, at, uh, yeah. exactly. After I get back from being up north with a bunch of carnivores and foregoing other meat consumption unless I have uh, personally acquired it from a local farmer. So I, I, would, allow, I would allow pork, locally raised uh, pork or chicken and no beef for a month. Okay, great. So I want to mention, and this is a little bit more for the listeners, but also for you, is that this keeps happening. People, they keep saying, at first they're like, I'm not really sure. And then at some point they're like, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. I feel like the whole world is full of people who have been thinking about stuff, but they've kind of put it down because they feel like, oh, it won't make a difference. And, or people will laugh at me. People will ask me, I don't know what keeps people from acting. I'm doing it myself. So, you know, I, I have things that I've been thinking of that I, I'm, are below my conscious threshold of awareness. And then people, it seems to be joyful when it actually comes out. And I think this, well, we'll talk next time about what happens when one acts on these things. I mean, you have a lifetime of these things. And so what I propose doing is to, well, when we hang up, we'll schedule next time. And yes. I'd like to restart there where we are now and combining these things. And you said community influences people, if I remember right, from earlier in the conversation. And you're in a lot of people's communities. And- that's what I want to bring out. And I wonder if you have any, anything to say to the listeners before we wrap up. And I mean, we'll talk again in a month. That's yeah. how you'd like to close. No, maybe then we can talk a little bit about the origin story of Earth Day. As I reflect on this quite a bit, obviously, it's a you know, big part of my father's legacy. But I give talks, a lot of talks about this. And just imagine this for a moment. My father went off to Washington as a United States senator uh, with a strong conservation ethic and found uh, very little interest among his uh, fellow senators in addressing the environmental challenges. Uh, At the time he was elected, there was no environmental protection agency uh, designed to protect our rights. And I consider these fundamental rights of every American to breathe clean air and drink clean water. A Republican president created the EPA. My father struggled to find an idea 
And he came up with the original Earth Day idea was to ask teachers to set aside a single day to talk about the environment. And he did not want to prescribe what they should talk about. He wanted everyone, wherever they lived, to think about what was meaningful to them in their community, which was really the genius of Earth Day, was it wasn't a prescribed, top-down kind of thing. And lo and behold, this simple idea of just a, a day for teachers to teach became the 20 million people, the largest secular event in American history, well beyond my father's original vision, successful beyond his wildest imagination. Uh, the fact that it endures today would, was a huge surprise uh, to him. And the point I want to make is that there are unforeseeable outcomes to ideas and actions. And Earth Day is a perfect example of the unforeseeable outcome of a simple idea and then the action of many individuals that collectively manifested itself as, in essence, the, a precipitous moment in our history. And more laws were passed to protect uh, clean water and clean air and public lands than any other time in American history because of a simple idea that resonated beyond its original concept that tapped into the power of individuals who then collectively created this enormous political will for uh, Richard Nixon, the Republican president, to create EPA, for the renewable, the Clean Air Act, uh, Clean Water Act, for the adoption of the Clean Air Act, and uh, so many other uh, laws that today we might take uh, for granted. And so that power um, of ideas and action from an individual uh, has the potential for these unforeseeable outcomes. And Earth Day is certainly a, a great example of that. Yeah, I certainly feel that it has been a big influence for me. I hope that new ideas and new actions will make as great as that was for that to have been just the beginning. And Tia Nelson, thank you very much for sharing all that you've shared about the, the history back to your father, the work you've done uh, all the time since. And I really look forward to to talking again next time and, and following it more. Oh, well, I'm grateful, Josh, for your work and uh, your caring and uh, your interest in the story. So just delighted to be a part of the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love hearing the transformation from talking about potential to determined action. I also love hearing the transformation from talking about individual action in the abstract to individual action. If someone after 27 years can find easy things to do, anyone can. To anyone who thinks eating less meat is easy or obvious and that she could have done it earlier, maybe, but maybe not. Either way, it suggests that there are easy things for you to do. Anyone can miss things. Most often, I find, for thinking that the things that they're thinking of doing aren't big enough or that others won't value them or that people judge them for it, which is why I insist that people not feel like they have to do something to change the whole world all by themselves. I bet that when you look at what the environment means to you and you come up with something that you can do to act on it, you'll find meaning and purpose in acting on it. So what's your thing that you've been thinking about that you could act on? Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.